parfait. Suddenly, a problem that was totally unsolvable in the first framing becomes solvable in the second framing. I'm not a good enough computer scientist or statistician or mathematician, so I often joke that I have an emotional understanding of these things. So I end up kind of emotionally understanding what is going on. But I end up with enough understanding with my colleague who's a mathematician like Nick or my colleague who's a computer scientist. I can have conversations with them that are kind of useful for them. Welcome to the Night Science Podcast, where we explore the untold story of the scientific creative process. We are your hosts. I'm Itai and I. And I am Martin Lurcher. Ewan Burney is Deputy Director General of the European Molecular Biology Lab, which is also known as EMBL. And he's the co-director of the European Bioinformatics Institute. In his research, Ewan combines his training in biochemistry with computer science. And when he got started, bioinformatics, which is what you call this kind of work, was actually a very new kind of science. Like many people didn't even consider it a field of inquiry. Ewan developed one of the very databases where one can browse through genomes to see what's where. It's called Ensemble for those people who ever worked with these kind of things. Yeah. And during this time, back when Ewan was a grad student, the way you would sequence a piece of DNA was through a method that actually was very complicated and involved radioactive isotopes, and at the end only produced just a few tens of letters, their DNA nucleotides. Now that output of sequencing has increased by so much, it's incredible. By how many fold, Ewan, would you say? You know, it's millions. You could even put billions on it, yeah. <laughs> okay, a lot is the summary. And Ewan became so adept at studying this huge output that he actually became one of the heroes of the Human Genome Project, which was that project that allowed us to figure out what is the entire sequence of the human heritage, where are the genes, how many genes are there. He actually put together a big sweepstake for people to guess, and it uh, turns out everybody was wrong. It takes a, a lot fewer genes than expected. Today, he continues to be a visionary of new directions in molecular biology, working in many fields, and also leading big biology projects. So Ewan, thank you so much for being here. And to get started, we want to hear from you, what is your process for doing science? Yeah, so there's a couple of different ways to answer this. Very often, the final ideas crystallize when I'm having a shower. <laughs> okay. And, you know, my wife jokes that she knows when this happens because I'm in the shower for a long time. And also, I'm very lucky because I do science. So, you know, you get paid for doing something that is just so fascinating. But I'm also lucky in other ways. So one is computational biology, bioinformatics. You're allowed to roam across a lot of different topics in biology because nearly everything these days involves data analysis inside of a computer. And so there's this very big space. And the second thing is I do some things which are very much right at the start, they were just me. And then later on, it would be me and my student or me and my postdoc. And it would be a very much just sort of two brains on the problem or one brain on the problem. But also, as you mentioned, I do a lot of things which are really big projects, and it's a lot about logistics. But of course, those projects bring up challenges or things 
where you're like, why doesn't this work? Or why doesn't our understanding of this match this mm. other thing? And so those moments of challenge is also really important. Now, one thing I have learned when I was a student, twice this happened to me, it was really embarrassing, where I clearly started to think about a problem whilst I was driving. And one time I'd stopped at entering a roundabout and the next thing I remember is someone knocking on my door <laughs> and the person, the car behind, or they walked up to me and said, you know, are you okay? And I realized I'd just been thinking very hard about a particular problem. You just gave up on entering. <laughs> no, it reminds me of something that I think I read in Daniel Kahneman's book, which is that our ability to multitask gets lower and lower the more challenging it is what we're thinking about. So if you're thinking really hard, then you can't just drive your car on the side, right? You just have to. So I have quite a firm rule not to think about work when I'm driving. But so you and we were interrupting you. You were still in this big overview of your creative process. I mean, obviously, like many people, I love having a person I'm working with. And sometimes that's a peer and sometimes, you know, it's a colleague and sometimes it's my student, sometimes it's postdoc. And there's a lot of back and forth. So I've got a good example of this. It's great. It starts in a bar in Hamburg. It ends up as a nature paper and patent. So you up for this one? Yeah, yeah sure. Go for it. So this is back in 2007, 2008. So the selection machines and the first machines are coming out and they are producing data at a scale that we've never seen before. And for us at the EBI, the data rate that was arriving at the EBI was faster than the halving of the cost of disk. You know, as soon as you're on the wrong side of an exponential curve, that's it. So we were doing these plots and it was, are we going to have to do something completely radical? Now, that challenge led to one solution, which was reference-based compression. I did that with my student, Marcus Yang Fritz. That was actually the solution to the problem. But with my long-term colleague, Nick Goldman, we were joking that obviously the best digital storage device is DNA. So, mm -hmm. you know, DNA is a polymer. You can digitally copy it. You know, there's a bunch of molecular biology tricks to do the copying. So in theory, you can reposition DNA as a storage device. And over a Hefeweizen in this bar, very trendy hotel in mm -hmm. Hamburg, we threw around this idea. And both Nick and I knew enough about DNA and information storage to know what the constraints were, so very clearly DNA has the conceptual capability of storing anything, so that's fine. That's about just putting in the, the coding, decoding. But you've got kind of two big issues. So one is that DNA in the lab will always end up as fragments. And the second problem is we knew that a very large class of errors are due to homopolymers, so where it goes T, 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 T for a very long time, or A, 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 A. Pretty quickly at that bar, we realized both of them are solvable. So the first one is, which is the fragmentation. It's very similar to how disk drives work or TCP IP, which is how the internet protocols work. You can definitely solve it by cutting things into packets and having some of the information indicate the address of the packet. And then Nick said, well, yeah, this homopolymer problem is fine. We just have to have an encoding rule that never generates a homopolymer. And that's something that you figured out at the bar? 
at the bar. <laughs> so in that back and forth, we realized those two things. How many beers into the conversation were you at this point? Uh, yeah, I think it was two Hefeweizens, yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. okay, just check. It's a, it's a two Hefeweizen problem, as it were, yeah. So uh, then Nick definitely played around a bit more and did a bit of simulations with this coding and some fragments. And Nick said, yeah, we can definitely do this. And then we're like, well, should we publish it? And I said, well, it really would make sense if we actually did it when we actually mm-hmm. do it implement it implement it so then yeah. we talked to a company in the us that makes dna and we said could we get dna to our own design here's this crazy idea and ps could we like get it for free or cheap or something and they thankfully said yes so that's twist bioscience so we then did the whole thing for real where we ordered dna of our own design Mm-hmm. had it shipped over to us and then we reconstructed the message that of course we had created on the paper there's more than me and nick but it's mainly me and nick and it's mainly nick in terms of doing things but a lot of that creative process is me and nick kind of putting stuff together you i mean this is clearly a very very creative project you know like who does that can you tell us more about how did you get to that idea how did that idea arise Yeah, I mean, I just presented the plan for how we were not going to go run out of money by storing all this DNA data. And that was a compression plan to my colleagues, which included Nick. And in that discussion, people were worried about the cost of the disk. And they also worried about the cost of the electricity to run the computers. And then it was literally Nick and my joking around that surely, surely the right storage (laughs) format. Is DNA. So you said that you were prompted by a problem. How can we store all this data, which we are creating in ever increasing rates? I think it's a particular skill just to be able to frame such a question. And some people, they particularly like to go to conferences or seminars just to hear what the speaker will sort of say off the cuff. Just in between the slides, the speaker might say, oh, you know, we have this problem. And then you say, aha, I found a problem. Do you have particular tricks for how you stay tuned in to what the problems are? They come in diverse ways to me, for sure. And if you go to a recent theme to my research, it's a very old set of problems, very, very old, which was originally stated back in the 1910s. What's the right statistical model for genetics? Mm -hmm. So some problems I get inspired by these things which we kind of sweep under the carpet or we keep on ignoring because we are kind of comfortable about the solutions that we've created, even if we know that they're wrong or they're mm. approximations because all these things end up being approximations. But a lot of other ones have come because of technology changes. The technology takes you in a new place. So sometimes I think there are problems that are posed simply by the technology being present. You're like, wow, I can look, let's look. Or, you know, this should be able to do this. Can't we make this do this? Yeah, but this only works if you really are at the forefront of the technology and if you know exactly what the technology can do and how it does that, right? Sometimes you don't have to be... So that people who develop technology often don't necessarily know the best questions to ask with the technology. Yeah, it's a different skill. Yeah, and so sometimes there are big sets of problems where somebody just hasn't applied technology X to it. And technology X has been around for a long time, sometimes. Mm. And the people with the problem haven't realized that you can reframe 
X into solving it. And sometimes that's not a measurement technology. Sometimes that's analytic technology. So I do love this moving around and using different techniques on different problems. And that's one of the privileges of doing computational biology. You mentioned quite rightly at the start that bioinformatics was a very new field when I started, and that's also, but I'm very lucky for that. But one way of thinking about bioinformatics is it's really data science and molecular biology. So if we were starting the field now, it would just mm. be called data science and molecular biology. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because, I guess so. Because it started back in the kind of late 80s, early 90s, it's been given this very specific name, bioinformatics. And later on, this more generic name, data science, came about. And so in a weird way, molecular biology or bioinformatics, however you like to put it, has been doing data science for a very long time, yeah, yeah. a couple of decades before the whole data science West Coast thing. No, I guess you're right. But not only in biology with bioinformatics, but I think in many fields, people were doing data science. But it was considered parts of those separate fields, right? Like in economics, they yeah. would analyze data. In biology, they would analyze data. And just this idea that really what they're doing is kind of the same. I think that's the insight that maybe came a bit late. I'm wondering, right? You were talking about the role of technology in driving new questions and helping you to come up with new questions or giving you the ability yeah. to ask new questions. But on the other hand, you are, of course, also, I mean, not only somebody who works with technology, but you're also a biochemist and genomics person. So how do these things interact when you think about how you get to new questions that you want to address? Yeah, so there are some questions in biology which are sort of evergreen and just very, very long-standing. You know, the classic one is, is genotype to phenotype. And the other classic one is development, which is I start with a single cell and I end up with a human or with a duck or whatever I end up with. And then you kind of chip away at them and you have new ways of attacking them. And one of them is when there's a new technology, you attack some part of it in a different way. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I've gone back to this genetics problem. And although some of the technologies that I can bring to it now are, are very, very different from 1910, the question is still sort of the same. Do we just add these numbers up or do we do something else? And scientists for the last 100 years have just been very, very happy adding the numbers up. And we don't actually know. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Right. We sort of don't know how much of a pain that approximation is. You and... Continuing on this theme of data science and themes that go back 100 years or more, I've seen you discuss in a recent seminar data science going back all the way to Mendel. Yeah. So, you know, I, so full credit to the person who came up with it, which was Kim Naismith, great molecular biologist, biochemist who ran the Institute of Molecular Pathology in Vienna for a very long time. He's now retired somewhere, I think, in South France. He's a Brit. And he was asked to write a review about Mendel And so Kim made this point that there was something very different from what Mendel did to what Darwin did. And I thought it was really interesting. And Kim's point was that Mendel really made systematic observations. And from those systematic observations, he then proposed and showed that it would work a particular model, which we call Mendelian genetics. And Kim does make the distinction to Darwin, where Darwin does a lot of observation. He's rooting his understanding from observation, but he's not being anywhere near as systematic and tabulated as Mendel is. 
One of the interesting things about being a statistician is one knows in a model how much variation one should expect given the model. And what we now know is that Mendel's data is a little bit too good to be true. So it's Mm -hmm. not quite random enough, which implies that he was censoring his data when he felt it was wrong, which also tells you that Mendel had kind of somewhere into his data observation process he felt like he knew what was going on. (laughs) So sure, Mendel must have cheated a little bit. So as you say, he must have sort of knew what he was looking for. He must have actually had a hypothesis at some point. So he definitely presented the result that worked. Not the first scientist, or certainly not the last scientist to do that. So here's the question for you then. Would you say that data science is inquiry that involves hypotheses from the outset or not necessarily? It could be Darwin style. A lot of my colleagues and myself sometimes get hit over the head with this in peer review of our grants. Fishing expeditions is the claim for genomicists who are just generating data. There's some validity to the critique, which I can come to, but mainly it's not a valid thing. I think the best way in this discussion of hypotheses is a classical way of thinking about science and being able to refute things is to say that you're in the hypothesis generating part of this process. So what you're doing when you gather data, you basically say, I think if I gather this data, I will discover things. And here are some ways I'm going to analyze it, which I have some confidence that it's going to work out. But ultimately, I will generate hypotheses, and then I can test those hypotheses. Now, what I think it goes wrong is when the fundamentals of how you gather the data cannot possibly answer some of the questions that you want to answer or cannot generate valid hypotheses. So, you know, we can measure all the genes expression in a cell type at once or all the protein phosphorylation sites at once, or we can survey all the genetic information in the genome in a single shot. And this sort of comprehensive view of a particular class of phenomena does give biology a bit of a joker in the pack of asking questions, because you can really say, look, it's got to be somewhere here. I've set things up correctly. It must be somewhere in my data set. So you can use that comprehensiveness in quite clever ways. Yeah. So to that kind of, do you need a hypothesis? I mean, I've literally had to do this a number of times where I've had to like state your hypothesis and I've had to state, you know, humans are a complicated species (laughs) and... You know, my hypothesis that by generating this data set, correlation patterns of this type will emerge, and they will correlate to things which are about the fundamental molecular biology of the thing you're looking at. <laughs> I really like that yeah. formulation. You know, I don't think I would have come up with the idea of calling that my hypothesis. Yeah, I mean, I think although this gets into an epistemological philosophical discussion about what do we mean by knowledge <laughs> yeah. and understanding and mm-hmm. la 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 la. But in practice, I certainly move between discovery and hypothesis generation Mm -hmm. and hypothesis testing and triangulation. So this is a really good concept, triangulation. You know, you've made a set of discoveries or you've generated some hypotheses about how the world works from this big data set. Now, can I bring an orthogonal data set, which is mm-hmm. clearly not related to the data set that I use to generate this, to test that? And obviously, mm-hmm. sometimes you might do a very deliberate experiment, and that's the most obvious way to do that. 
But in right. fact, you don't have to. Sometimes you can bring a data set which you can convince yourself and your colleagues is completely separated from your first data set. Right. And yet it interlocks with your data set in a particular way. And it can kill the hypothesis if it's wrong. Yeah, it has the power exactly. to do that. Yes. I mean, proving that something's wrong is just really hard. Yeah. So what you can only do is you can say, this other data set has no mm-hmm. support for this hypothesis. Mm-hmm. I've had, by the way, I've literally had this experience with both biologists and clinicians where they've come up with a data set. We've both agreed we're going to, you know, it's really exciting. Off we go. Generate this do this analysis and what have you. And my clinician colleague will say, and this is what we expect the answer to be, you know, X, Y, and Z. And then, you know, we want to develop some drugs for this. So if you could just like tidy up the hypothesis generation part of this. (laughs) Um, I turn around and say, look, it just doesn't hang together that way. We have Mm. no support for the way you thought this was working out. Mm. And um, quite often, the first thing is, well, you've screwed up the analysis. Yeah, you must and, have you know, done so, so, something wrong, yeah. All the so, worst for your analysis. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes, of course, sometimes you have screwed up the analysis. So you have to kind of right. go back and work out, how can I convince myself and my colleague that the analysis is totally sound? Right. <laughs> so it's getting this kind of interlock of different analyses and data sets and other things where you end up saying, right, now this must be wrong is not quite the right word, but there is no support for this yeah. hypothesis, even though this data set will support these other four hypotheses that we, for other reasons, know to be true. You almost have to apologize for that when in reality, it's actually the best possible outcome. You've discovered something new. Yeah, so something surprising. And again, the best clinician researchers I work with are the ones who sometimes takes them a bit of time to process. Right. And then they turn around and they say, aha, okay, this makes sense because of this, because of this, and because of this. So that's a lovely sort of moment where you do <laughs> feel knowledge has kind of progressed, if you know what I mean. It's like, yes. aha. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is not how it works. This is how it works. Yeah, yeah. About triangulation, you know, would you agree with this statement about it, that the validation is day science and the idea, the hypothesis that you generated, that's night science, and it could be spurious, it could be just random, and so we do need a kind of independent test, and that's day science triangulation of it. That's fair. I now understand the title of your podcast so much better. (laughs) Exactly. I can see that analogy, except I do both of these things during the journey. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And very definitely, I sort of know when I'm in hypothesis generation mode. That's often these very large data sets which you've generated, knowing that it's going to give you insight into this broad set of problems. So my research group know this. I love the plots and you've got to come with two bits. One is like interesting hits. So things which you are sure don't fit the null model, but also it must be accompanied with evidence that your null model does fit most of the data. In other words, the discovery process was valid. And so that second bit is the bit which I think if you don't live these big scale projects, you don't get that. Some people skip over this null model thing. Like, is my null model valid? And then once I know my null model is valid for most of the things I'm looking at, I can now give myself permission to look at the things that don't fit the null model. And then I'm going to ask why. And of course, sometimes they're artifacts and extremely boring. Sometimes they are just well-known things which have been discovered by other things. And so you kind of tick those off. 
And then there's, you know, in between artifact and boring, well-known stuff, it's this sort of like, ah, why <laughs> is this there? What is going on there? Why this? Gene? Yeah. So that's always a great moment. So in your experience, like if you have 100 data points that do not fit the null model, so something's going on there, like how many of those would belong to each of those three categories? It really does vary. There's always a significant number in the known and the not known. If you've done things right, you know, once you're used to a particular way of doing things, you can usually arm yourself against the artifacts. Mm -hmm. And so hopefully you can clean them out. But again, I mean, literally this week, I was with my postdoc, and she had a great result. But I was like, ah, that's an indel, and it's only in the Danish data set. <laughs> something smells really weird here. And I don't like the look of this. And there's quite a lot of experience. This is where I've often described this as battle scars. You mm. know, in particular, when you move fields, the really useful thing is to meet someone who has those battle scars and mm -hmm. definitely find those people and work with them for a fair period of time. Because it's kind of a craft of knowing when things go wrong, knowing when they go right. Yeah. And you know, I think you are someone that has quite a few battle scars when we think about exploring genomic data sets. So I want to ask you about the tricks that you've developed on how to analyze a new data set. You know, someone gives you a data set, there's no hypothesis. They say, here's the answer. What was the question? Yeah. So, you know, R.A. Fisher, who really founds genetics and modern frequentist statistics, famously said that if you present an analysis in a data set to a statistician late, the best he can do is give an autopsy of what went wrong. Yeah? yeah. So that's a great phrase. And so the first thing to say is, you know, wherever possible, get involved in the design and, you know, resist being brought in halfway through a project, unless you're very confident that design was good. You know, unfortunately, there's still a lot of kind of just poorly designed projects. And some of this is, you know, replication numbers and stuff like that. But some of it is much more conceptual, which is, Is this data set ever going to be able to answer the question I'm interested in? So, so the first thing to learn is navigating this social space of the way scientists work together between the analysts and the people doing the measurements. Then later on, there is that, you know, for GWAS, believe you me, my, my, my team <laughs> know what to do now. I know what to do. I can look at a plot and go, ooh, that looks good, or ooh, that looks bad. So these kind of diagnostic plots. And I've enjoyed learning the skills, say, for epidemiology. I'm still sort of learning my ropes there. Just what is the diagnostic plot you need to see, which often won't be in the main paper because it's so boring, but will be in the supplement. You know, yeah. what is the plot that tells you that, like, everything is going in the right direction? And then, I mean, just riffing on this one, sometimes the things that you think are artifacts are, of course, really interesting bits of biology. Um, I had a great example of that on, I mean, it's very, I would not bore you with the technical stuff, but there's a very common thing in genomics called blacklisting. So these are parts of the genome which are behaving weirdly, and blacklisting is a parts of the, of the genome which you just sort of blank out for this assay. And so uh, my student came to me and we were looking at this. The null model refused to fit. And there were like a thousand points that were just like 
stubbornly not agreeing with the rest of the data points, which are all looking beautiful. And I went, we went back and forth and, you know, we were going back and forth with different blacklisting. And I eventually said, look, if you can't work out what these things are <laughs> in a week's time. We are just going to create a very specific blacklist for this assay and we're going to blacklist all these guys. Okay, so that's it. Kind of decided that these things were artifacts. I just didn't understand them. Okay. And at the end of that week, he came back to me and he said, well, yeah, okay, I'm up for this, but I just want to check you. They're all on the X chromosome. I'm like, really? They're all on the X chromosome? And I was like, well, <laughs> okay, let's look at that. And they're all on the X chromosome. And then if we split them, by male and female, our model fits. I was like, okay. That's something. That's something. So then we have to like completely turn the car around, dig into this thing that we thought was an artifact. And in the paper, we do say, I'm proud of this, I say serendipitously. We uh, nice. <laughs> you, you got it in there. That's great. That's great. <laughs> and, you know, it's a big section of the paper. It's another one of these rabbit holes where you're like, oh, I want to do the follow-up experiments, but I need to make a mouse. I've not persuaded anybody to really look at it. And so it's now a dangling hypothesis, if you like to put it that way. It's a good example of that kind of, is it an artifact or is it a bit of biology question? Yeah. So you, you were talking about these battle scars and that it would be important if you move into a new field where you're not so experienced, that you work with the experts who have those battle mm. scars to help you navigate the problems with the analyses. But, you know, actually, Laszlo Barabashi, when he was on the podcast, said something that sounds like it's the exact opposite of that, which is that you shouldn't really listen too much to the experts because they make the same assumptions as everybody in the field and they're not going to question them. So how does that fit together for you? So for me, it's, you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Mm -hmm. So I do think when you come as an outsider into a field, which I often had, again, it's kind of a privilege almost because of the way data analysis works. You totally can say, look, I do it like this. And, you know, what's so wrong with doing this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and what about this? And then, you know, sometimes the expert will come back and say, yeah, 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 we thought about that 50 years ago. Let me explain why this one doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you listen to the expert. I mean, you can still say, well, I think it should work. So talk me through that again. Or, of course, they turn around the expert. If they're good and open-minded, they're like, yeah, well, we, gosh, I've never thought about it that way. And off we go, yeah, into a new space. So I'm not one of these people. I always like working with people. Always, always, always. And, of course, you've got to work with the people who are flexible in their thinking You don't want to work with people who literally think they know the answer before the questions are. I mean, you know, mm -hmm, and right. what's the point? Yeah, 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 yeah. There are some scientists who almost like to work apart for a period of time. I don't, it's just not the way I do it. But I don't think that means I get captured by the other field. So for me, it's more about the people you interact with than it is about the kind of this, oh, I'm going to hold myself aloof mm -hmm. from this. You know, because the, both, because the battle scars are real and You'd be a fool, I think, to say, I don't know, you, you know, many clever people have attacked this problem for sometimes 100 years, <laughs> mm -hmm. and somehow their experience is not going to help me. I mean, that's slightly bizarre. But you've got to come with a skeptical view on many things. Mm -hmm. That skepticism, it's as much about skepticism about your own ideas as it is about others. 
as well as backing some of that initial enthusiasm, you do have to have some humility where you're like, oh, okay, I see. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know? I have been doing this for quite a number of years. Yeah. 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 And just like stubbornly saying, oh, my first piece of enthusiasm was, <laughs> was valid. Yeah. Right. I don't think it's going to be useful. Still, it's good. I mean, there's a lot of this, which I think is about curiosity and enjoyment and fun, if you see what I mean. Right. Um, it's a mixture of speculation. Often there is this like, oh, look, I've got this technique. And maybe it's an analytic technique, not a new measurement technique. You're like, oh, let's try this new analytic technique over here. I think the Picasso's problem this way, we solve it. So I had a big kind of period when I got into De Bruyne graphs, which was about assembly algorithms, stuff like that. And that was a really interesting business of taking a problem, you recast it mathematically into a different shape. Mm -hmm. And in the different shape, solutions present themselves really, really easily, which weren't present when you had them in the former situation. Is that something that you think is like a general theme, at least in some of your projects, that you have to reframe the question? So I think that's very common. The closer you get to the statistical and analytical end of it, you know, the trick here is reframing problems. In some sense, it's, you know, which of the multivariate statistical toolkits am I going to pull out today? Is it going to be hidden markov models? Or is it going to be latent variables? Or is it going to be neural networks? Or is it, you know, that's one way you kind of think of it as tools. Mm -hmm. When you get closer to, say, the computer science end of it, a lot of it is, okay, how do I actually cast the problem? So very formally, what is the data structure behind the representation of the problem? And sometimes when you move, you cast the problem in a different way, um, suddenly a problem that was totally unsolvable in the first framing becomes solvable in the second framing. Mm -hmm. I'm not a good enough computer scientist or statistician or mathematician. So I often joke that I have an emotional understanding of these things. So I end up okay. kind of emotionally understanding what is going on. But I end up with enough understanding with my colleague who's a mathematician like Nick or my colleague who's a computer scientist. I can have conversations with them mm -hmm. that are kind of useful for them and obviously for me. And in that conversation, so we're trying to reframe the problem or restate it. And by doing so, one kind of just gains insight. And sometimes those insights are completely profound. Yeah. And when you say emotional understanding, I think the way I interpret that is that you could have a discussion with someone where you don't really know all of the details of their trade. And you could still be of help to them if you understand the theme, if you understand the possibilities. Yeah, definitely. And you've got to bridge enough understanding. So I have a graphical model of this expertise, which I call my diamonds and whiskers. So this is a high dimensional space problem. But just for visualization, let's imagine there's just one axis and the axis oh. goes from dry to wet, dry oh. meaning computational and wet meaning keeping animals and looking after humans and this sort of thing. Okay. So Here's my visualization. In these kind of teams, each person is a diamond. So there's a middle fat part of your diamond where you have your most expertise. Okay, that's the expertise. And you go down to the edges. 
And those are what you can do. And then on the edge, you have whiskers. And the whiskers are the things that you can talk about, but you can't actually do. You can, sort of, <laughs> you can wave your hands around them. You can wave your hands. Say, <laughs> I, I can't. Over uh, a beer, know, certainly. So, yeah, you know, there's a lot of stuff. For example, the Madaka fish husbandry. You know, I can kind of talk about it. You uh-huh. know, this is where you set up an F2 cross. Uh-huh. But I can't actually do it. I absolutely would not know how to do it. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's so, lots of things like that for me. <laughs> yeah. So the, when you do a piece of science, you need a team. The first thing you have to accept is my diamond cannot stretch from the left to the right. This uh-huh. is a big moment in every scientist's life where they're like, shit, my diamond mm. will not stretch. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, they don't tend to do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. stretch your diamond. You, you can't do it. Yeah. So that's number one. The next thing, so you're there, you say, right, obviously I can't stretch it. So now I need a team. And the trick is that at least the diamonds have to overlap across the team, not the whiskers. And the mistake in putting together teams is when you've got a dry person who can talk about something but can't actually do it on the wet side, and a wet person who can talk about this other thing that the dry person thinks is wet and the wet person thinks is dry. So they're not actually communicating. But neither of them can actually do it. Uh-huh. So <laughs> and, what you're saying uh, is, it's not enough if just the whiskers overlap. The, the diamonds have to sort of touch, almost. Yeah. Otherwise, you don't have the kind of chain to take the thing through the whole thing. So my diamond and whiskers analogy comes out when I'm giving team science talks. So that's my team science thing, yeah. Okay, and the whiskers, is that what you called emotional understanding? Yes, I guess. So I have a question about that because, you know, if you would say like uh, conceptual understanding or approximate understanding, you know, that would make immediate sense to me. It's interesting to me that you call it instead emotional understanding. Why emotional? Because I think, Yeah, because I'm a kind of emotional, touchy-feely kind of guy, and it's less threatening (laughs) when I say uh, So the reason why I'm fascinated with this term emotional in this context, I think, is that maybe creativity has a lot to do with emotion and with emotional reactions to ideas and to problems and to questions. And I was just wondering if that has something to do with your choice of word here. I don't know about that. I just am fascinated by life and things around me. I can find nearly anything fascinating. And so I definitely have a very kind of personal relationship to the problems which are in the front of my brain at any particular time. You know, they're there because I'm really interested in them and they're sort of friends. Um, So, yeah, problems definitely have personalities for me. Let's put it that way. Ewan, it's been a great conversation. Are there aspects of the creative process that you wanted to tell us about that we didn't get to, that we missed? Oh, I don't know. A catch-all question. One thing which you said totally resonates with Mm. me is, you know, we teach science very much as this is the way the world works and please understand what these great people have said about this and stuff like that and and learn. Newton and Einstein. And Newton and Einstein and Darwin and Mendel and Dorothy Hodgkin and Rosalind Franklin. You know, there's this key moment when students, it happens during a PhD, Mm where like no one knows the answer. And this experience, for some students, I think it's a bit of a shock, where it's literally, there is no homework. (laughs) I don't know the right answer. You don't know the right answer. We are going to do this. And I can't promise you (laughs) that it's all going to work out the way it is. And there may be some brick walls. And, you know, classically, you always set your students up to have one 
easy project and then maybe well, it's sure win yeah. that you know come on it's, whatever happens we'll discover something and then one which is a bit more like well i really like the crap this problem but even more than that risk kind of thing the bit that i really love is when students and postdocs they find their own kind of questions basically and so then there's a moment when they just get driven by their own questions and they're like, no, 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 I want to do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I'm much more in kind of advice mode and sort of challenge mode and like, are you sure you've checked this? And this is the thing. And that is a great moment, I think. Just a great moment. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Ewan. This has been great. It was so interesting. 